Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 15, Airport, recorded here after the terrific derecho over the Victoria Day weekend, which knocked down all kinds of trees and power lines and things like that, but we're all okay on May 25th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail. You can look up his album on Spotify and Bandcamp, and today's intro is from the song T-Shirts, and the outro is Death of a Dream. Corrections today. When I said that I was sweating like a pig, it turns out apparently pigs don't have sweat glands, and thus my profuse sweating was categorically unpig-like entirely. I've made a contribution to the Swine Anti-Defamation League and sincerely apologize for the mischaracterization of their species. When I told my cat Indy, what, you strut around here like you own the place, name me one cat that's in charge of anything, and then she told me about another orange cat named Stubbs. And Stubbs is actually the honorary mayor of Taquitna, Alaska. Uh, she got an extra serving of wet food as my penance, but she still doesn't get to run the place. Can you believe there's a cat that was the mayor of, of a little town in Alaska? And finally, when I was defaming those cousins for marrying earlier, I was mistaken. Apparently, the kids of identical twins are technically and genetically speaking siblings, not cousins, so... Your face sure is red now, isn't it? <laughs> In dinosaur news, scientists hypothesize new fossil find is of a dinosaur killed in the asteroid strike. Remember that giant asteroid that extincted the dinosaurs 66 million years ago? Well, a few scientists have found a site in North Dakota, which they have named Tanis, and in it, they hypothesize that there is evidence that the environment they're uncovering was entombed by the massive upheaval caused by the asteroid strike at the end Cretaceous boundary. Quote, the entombed remains of animals and plants appear to have been rolled together into a sediment dump by waves of river water set in train by unimaginable earth tremors, says the article about the site. They've uncovered aquatic organisms mixed with terrestrial creatures, including a somewhat mummified leg of a dinosaur, suggesting that a cataclysmic event shoved all this material together very suddenly, an event such as the famously devastating asteroid impact at the end of the Cretaceous. The article was published in advance of the BBC broadcast of a documentary that was three years in production, showcasing the discoveries from the site, and which was rebroadcast for North American audiences on PBS, narrated by the wonderful Sir David Attenborough, whom we mentioned in the last episode with my guest Phil Hoare. Along with the unusual mix of aquatic and terrestrial specimens and the wonderfully entombed leg, there are fish that have impact debris in their gills, a turtle skewered by a wooden stake, mammals trapped in their burrows, the embryos of a pterosaur inside its egg, and skin impressions from a triceratops, and, on top of all that, where it appears to be a fragment from the asteroid itself. Says Robert De Palma, the University of Manchester's graduate student who leads the Tannis dig, quote, We've got so many details with this site that tell us what happened moment by moment. It's almost like watching it play out in the movies. You look at the rock column, you look at the fossils there, and it brings you back to that day. Imagine that. Imagine that, being able to specifically identify an exact day, 66 million years ago. 
It'll be a challenging hypothesis to prove, but it will be an exciting story to follow heading into the future. In other news, the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published the paper First Articulated Ornithomimid Specimens from the Upper Maastrichtian Scholared Formation of Alberta, Canada, on March 7th. While some ornithomimid dinosaurs are known from the Lake Cretaceous, like Ornithomimus and Struthiomimus, which are known from the United States, a lack of contemporary material from Alberta has left a gap in understanding ornithomimid diversity at that time. Ornithomimids are fast, omnivorous animals from the late Cretaceous with small skulls, large eyes, and long slender necks with toothless beaks. Their forelimbs were long and slender with powerful claws, and their hindlimbs were long and powerful with a long foot and short, strong toes terminating in a hoof-like claw, probably among the fastest dinosaurs of all time. They bore a superficial resemblance to ostriches, who were almost certainly feathered. They're known from Laurasia, Africa, and Australia, and first appeared in the early Cretaceous. The ornithomimus specimen TMP 1993.104.1, housed at the Royal Tyrrell Museum, consists of an articulated left forelimb, the distal half of the humerus, antibrachium, and manus, as well as an articulated gastralia, the distal right antibrachium, and isolated right metacarpals and phalanges. These aren't specifically diagnostic elements for ornithomimus, but the moderately curved non-raptorial manual unguals are diagnostic for the family ornithomimidae and it was likely a juvenile. The Struthomimus specimen is TMP 1998.026.1, also at the Royal Tyrrell Museum, but I couldn't find any other data on it, but it's said to be a hind limb including pedal unguals supporting its referral to Struthiomimus. These discoveries expand the stratigraphic ranges of both species, and they provide new information about the taxonomic composition of North American ornithomimids during the Maastrichtian age. Namely, it extends their existence from the late Campanian age and the dinosaur park formation, all the way to the late Maastrichtian age in the Scholard formation, which constitutes about 10 million years. Right, with those corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Joining me as a guest today is Robbie Dorman. On his bio and his website, he says he believes in horror, and when he's not writing, he's podcasting. He's playing video games or petting cats. He's the author of 10 novels, including nine horror novels, and his latest is a Western called Burial. And he's also a podcast host of The Simpsons Show, which I love very much, The Handsome Boys Comics Hour, and The Serial Fanaticist. Please welcome the overwhelming Robbie Dorman with me today. Did you, Robbie, want to give a, a small synopsis of your latest novel, Burial, and where people can find it, along with oh, the, things like that? Uh, yes, uh, Burial is a, it's a post-apocalyptic revenge Western. That's the, the shortest, shortest way I can encapsulate it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is about a aging lady gunslinger looking for revenge and having to get it by burying the man who wronged her in a radioactive hellscape, ensuring he gets sent to the darkest, deepest hell. <laughs> um, it is for fans of, like, if you like Stephen King's The Dark Tower series, mm -hmm. it, you'd like this as well. Um, it's my newest book, and I think it's my best. Is he buried alive? It's on... No, he's ah. dead. That's the, <laughs> that's the, that is the trick, but it's not... There's, a, there's some twists and turns. It's not a... Here, I'll get, it's not, a, this isn't a spoiler, yeah. but it's also a thing hard to encapsulate in a, a pitch, an elevator pitches, but um, he starts the novel dead. He's, she's already killed him. Okay. And he's strapped to her horse, and she's riding out to bury him, um, this long quest she's on, and uh, he's talking to her. Okay. So she's having conversations with this dead man, and it's, uh, it's puzzling out the mystery of like, oh, is he 
actually talking to her <laughs> is she crazy you know like things like that but it's it's a, a way to to tell the story but it's i don't know it's a really weird idea and i hope people give it a chance oh i bet you it's awesome so for people who don't know, Robbie and I met at a secret writer's retreat out of a Chuck Palahniuk novel where the dominant motifs of sexual deviance, desperation, social distastefulness, disease, murder, death, and existentialism all manifested itself in the writing circle's behavior. And then we did inhuman things to one another and locked ourselves into a theater. And those of us who survived are still there to this day, waiting for someone to come unlock the doors. Have you read Palahniuk's Haunted? <laughs> I have. I think it's really distasteful that he wrote a book about us like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, on his, and I haven't and didn't even give us a cut. I didn't get any money. That's right. Um, the lawsuit's still in court. Those, <laughs> those terrible, terrible stories. Uh, I have read Haunted. Haunted's like very good. Uh, that guy's insane, and I'm glad he thinks of those things for us, so we don't have to. <laughs> and Chuck Chuck Polinuk, he will just take drugs that people send him without knowing what they are. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, he's talked about it in one of his interviews. People have just have like in through the post post office have sent him random drugs, pills, and whatever. He's just like, eh, mm -hmm. see what happens. I'm sure he's become effectively dewormed by now. So that's uh, good. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> he's a check check politics in that case, but that's I mean that's part of the charm. He is Jack's bad idea. Exactly. So what on earth made you agree to join me to talk about Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park? today oh i mean first of all i like i like podcasts and i like appearing on podcasts okay, right on. <laughs> so, and and then like it's a i love michael Crichton. i love mm -hmm. jurassic park michael Crichton has was a, certainly a big influence on me uh some one of the books one of the writers i read probably only second to maybe like to Stephen king for sure and then maybe dean Koontz. but those three are like when i was a kid like it's easy to be to forget how spoiled we are right now and how how accessible I can mm -hmm. find dozens and dozens of horror and science fiction and genre fiction writers and find new ones very easily just by going through either just go to Amazon or go into a lot of different you know book websites book reviewers and you get oh here's a list of recommended writers you're like oh I've never heard of this person or this person mm -hmm. you go check them out oh they're great when I was a kid. Yeah. There was like, you know, there's a little bookstore in my mall and there wasn't that, that, that choice wasn't there. And you, you, you don't know what to get. And you're like, oh, I grew up right when Jurassic Park hit mm -hmm. and I love the movie. And then I went and read the book and I love the book. And I read all of Michael Crichton's books after that. And as a little young Robbie, uh, I love them. And I think rereading Jurassic Park, I'd, I read it, reread a, a portion of it for this podcast, but I've reread Sphere, I think, last year. Right on. Um, and it's very clear now, reading his books, like how much they influence me and how much they drive my own writing. And I'm just like, oh, give me a chance to talk about dinosaurs and Michael Crichton. I'm going <laughs> to jump on it. Right on. Do you find that um, when, when doing a horror piece that science fiction plays an important role in, in building a, a believable universe? It depends. Obviously, it depends on the, the, yeah. the, the book. Some books, some of my books do have like it's unexplained, you know, it's, oh, it, why is this entity here? Oh, we don't know. But other times I think I was going to say like your listeners, if you like Michael Crichton, you like Jurassic Park, 
my like regrowth is probably my most Michael Crichton esque mm -hmm. book because uh, it takes place in a science lab and in the near future underground run by basically a James Bond villain. But uh, <laughs> in that in that situation, it's about you know the, uh, where the the protagonist is a scientist who's trying to regrow limbs, and in that like I certainly take that a drive of like. You people need you don't obviously, and I think that's the thing Mike Wrighton does so well, and it's a really and it it's continually stuns me whenever I reread one of his books, is it's very, very hard to interlace that it's not science, it is science fiction, but it is believable science fiction. Mm -hmm. it, you 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 go oh that could happen, I believe that that could happen in our world you know and jurassic park is the perfect example where you go yeah i buy that mm -hmm. that could happen and when you are building a i don't know even my even the crazier books i write about you know werewolves uh i try and i try and kind of just slide in like oh this is probably just some weird genetic aberration that you're these people these these boys are born with that's mm -hmm. and that's the reason they have this weird these this ability to transform and it's certainly not explained and it's probably so such a small percentage of the population mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we just haven't discovered it but that layer of believability immerses your readers and makes you makes them believe mm -hmm. and it makes you immediately buy into the world it's not some uh, this this is our world. Jurassic, the world of Jurassic Park is effectively it's our world. Mm -hmm. They're just oh they just they just made some dinosaurs. <laughs> That's right. And there's there's something to be said about the Green Mile was beautiful in a way that it was a real world thing, but there's just a little enough magic in it that it made you buy into it, and uh, and it made it all the more special. I know Chuck Palahniuk does that with a couple of his. What was the one? It was called Lullaby. But in yeah. any case, any time yeah. where you can just do a little bit, you know, it doesn't have to be totally revamping your whole universe. Just this one little element that makes it possible that you can latch on to and then it, it just makes so many more things possible. Uh, it's like the Matrix. All of a sudden, I can do Kung Fu or something like that. Like all The limits have changed and it really opens your mind to a whole new experience. And then when it comes parallel with an, an emotional moment as well, where a character is really uh, meeting some, some task that's of, of great importance... It, it collides and it's just these beautiful moments and really incredible stuff. And, and so this world building we were kind of talking earlier with Jurassic Park, they say, here's the groundwork. We've got this incredible new technology. We've got people who are using it irresponsibly and that's setting into motion anything that could happen. And so it's opened up this whole new world of what could, what could it be? And so Jurassic Park does it very well as uh, at the same time. It's really interesting. Yeah. The, 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 the fact that, and the book and the movie both do it. It's like, you don't start in the park. Yeah. You know, you don't start with like, you get a little tease. Oh, like, Oh, dinosaurs are dangerous. Obviously that's like, Oh yeah. And it's like, they will kill us. They're not, they don't belong here. We, they went extinct and there, that's probably a reason that we <laughs> thrived is because there's no big giant bird lizards that are going to eat <laughs> us. And it is that it's that kind of grounded realism, but then you're like, oh, this one element of magic, you know, and it's it is that it's a kind of interlacing of like science fiction and magic. A feeling it feels magical, and like they even kind of emphasize that when the when they first get those a sight of the dinosaurs, it's like, oh, wow, yeah. look at this, this wonder. And then, oh wait, 
not as it's not oh just this nice giant herbivore that is you know will just eat a lot of plants oh, it's also these terrible carnivores that are hunters and killers and they don't know anything about humanity and you're absolutely right that even in the book just as you get to the third iteration that final chapter before the, the scene act is uh it's called welcome and just i mean you know it's coming i know it's coming i've seen the movie enough times you know exactly what to expect you know exactly how you're gonna feel and it still does a reading in the book you still catch it and you're just like oh my god and you get goosebumps and it's amazing how you buy into it and it i mean they spilled the beans in a few chapters even before i was just talking with a friend about how you have biosyn sort of saying oh they're they're, they're cloning dinosaurs it's uh, and they're gonna try and breed them and, and sell them pet food and you're like okay that's kind of that didn't sound very cool at all and so you kind of have the, this magic spoiled for you a few chapters before you even get there. I, I don't understand quite why Crichton does it, but I guess you need to have a villain there that's uh, also got their machinations in place. But uh, he spoils the big surprise because we, we aren't told they're dinosaurs right up until that point. And then Biosyn's Dodson says, yeah, yeah, it's dinosaurs. Um, and everybody's like, can you do that? Oh, yeah, they can do that. <laughs> and then but you still get to the park and the first one you see and you're just blown away even in the text you don't see anything it's all in your mind's eye maybe Crichton does a wonderful job about not being too specific he lets your imagination imagine something wonderful and he just says it is wonderful and he makes you feel the euphoria and you don't even see what he's showing you're seeing what you want to see and it's incredible how he's able to lure you into that that moment for yourself it's really good I mean, I think it's it, you ask you know why he would tip his hand early and just and say use the word dinosaur. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing you like. You're really you're like you you see them use the word animal a lot, especially Hammond himself. He mm -hmm. doesn't use the word dinosaur pointedly. You know, I'm he he is he's doing it on purpose because he's trying to you know he wants he is the showman. He wants to have that big reveal, but I think part of it is. The title of the book is Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. You know, you're there is a bit of like, as a person who has to market your books, there's a part of you that's like, man, I want, I don't want to give away that these people are, oh, that's that this make this character is a vampire and they're dangerous. Mm -hmm. I don't want to reveal that until this, you know, until that one moment. But it's very difficult to sell a book about vampires without telling people that there are vampires in it. And when you have a book <laughs> called Jurassic Jurassic Park, and you you have these subtle hints early on about oh there's this weird lizard this little girl finds on a beach, oh there's these attacks on babies, uh, and and uh, oh there's they found this sample. I think it's a I I want to say that Crichton is basically just like acknowledging that okay I'm not I don't think you're stupid I know you know there's dinosaurs here. Mm -hmm. And I think he does want to set up that big villain. And I don't, he probably just went, there's no way on earth that they wouldn't say the word dinosaur in this meeting. Yeah. I can't get around it. And I want to set up this, the, the evil co corporation, or I would even say the more evil corporation. And I need to have it have a sense of realism, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, but also there's a sense of like, well, they're the bad guys. And we've seen the like the least little tiny chicken dinosaurs, you know, the compies. It's That's all right. we've seen so far. And we don't know what dinosaurs are there, theoretically. So, you know, that's not is a big difference between having a little tiny chicken dinosaur versus uh Patasaurus or Brachiosaurus, mm -hmm. or whatever. I forget which long neck 
dinosaur that is, but they're a bit of um, both. It depends if you read the book or the see the movie. <laughs> I, I guess that's that's tr- that's true. Yeah. Well, it's inter- interesting in that if you if if you don't know a lot, you know that there's going to be dinosaur, but you're not sure what it is, and you see this this character at the very beginning who's been attacked. He's had his uh, femoral artery slashed. He's uh, got a rotten smell on him from um, from being bitten, and he's surely gonna die. And the hoopia and the raptor, all of these mysterious. Uh, superstitions are going around and so you get this idea oh my god there's something significant that is perhaps supernatural that's uh, living on these islands what is it what is this monster what is this ghost that is harming people and then you're right the next dinosaurs we get are are chicken-sized little uh, bird chirping little things and you know is this the same thing that we need to worry about and so maybe there is a tease about what is because it's always this idea of what does the monster look like what is the the devil unknown that's out there that you're not sure what you're facing off against. And so it is interesting. <laughs> Even if you knew it was a dinosaur, you say, well, this one doesn't look very scary. And there's that, that no. idea that should we be and, scared? And to be things? fair, I'll say, I will say that I think that it's a, I remember growing up the Velociraptor now, now in 2022 mm-hmm is ubiquitous everyone because of jurassic park everyone knows the velociraptors of course t-rexes when you're a little kid but well before jurassic park came out before it was a thought everyone knows t-rex obviously t-rexes big deal um land before time even but when velociraptors weren't they weren't part of the zeitgeist people didn't really like i'm dinosaur nerds do about velociraptors Mm -hmm. but the average person they didn't really i don't there was no thought of like, oh, that's a, what's a velociraptor? And the, they were in, they were built this this idea of this deadly deadly hunter, in very smart, and how scary they are, is built up in Jurassic Park. Yes. And nowadays it's just like, oh, velociraptors, yeah, they they they're lumped in right alongside the the T Rex. T Rex is big and menacing. Velociraptors are menacing because they're fast and and smart and they work together but at the time no one knew what a velociraptor was and jurassic park basically taught us mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. oh yeah these are really dangerous animals and i think when you see that guy you know in the very early in the book oh it's a backhoe it's an industrial accident yeah, yeah. it's not a terrible dinosaur you don't your mind doesn't go to at least it didn't before them. It's it's hard to You're remove right. ourselves from the knowledge we have now about its build up of like the Velociraptor and Clever Girl and all that stuff. But at the time, you're just like, oh, okay, a dinosaur hurt him, but wouldn't a T Rex just eat him? Like mm-hmm. you don't you don't have that idea of oh, it's a Velociraptor and how they're built up as this very honestly the most dangerous animal mm-hmm. in the book. It's you're absolutely right. It's almost impossible to reread something like Jurassic Park without being contaminated by the film and obviously having read it before. It's hard to see it with fresh eyes, hard to experience it with fresh emotions, not seeing it for the first time. But I can recall specifically, like I, I did know of a Velociraptor in advance. I had this wonderful book that a, a good friend of mine gave me. And uh, it was in there, but I thought it was pronounced like Velociraptor or something like that. Like I didn't know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so and mm-hmm. I certainly didn't think that it was. Uh, I mean, it was just another one of the dinosaurs on this page of the book, and it wasn't one of the big ones. And uh, so it wasn't 
I mean, it didn't hold this as much cachet, uh, certainly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and so it's you're right. It transformed everybody's perception. It picked one animal and it, it went <laughs> uh, full bore ahead. And now everybody knows what it is. And like I live just outside of Toronto, and we named the basketball team after the Raptors a year later or two years later, because that's how crazy it was. And that is, it's not over an exaggeration. That's how crazy it was. <laughs> the Raptor was amazing. And uh, it captured everyone's imagination for so long and, uh, and changed the way everybody looked at it. And on a second note, when you're talking about um, not being able to see this through, you know, virgin eyes, there's the, the, the scene that uh, this chapter in particular is called Airport. And it's when Dodson meets his inside man who is, whose identity is unknown. And so there's this right. secret. Who is he meeting? And I thought, well, I was going through it. For the first time, I know it's Nedry, and you know it's Nedry, and anybody who's going to hear this podcast knows it's Nedry. But what if you didn't? And so why yeah. keep it a secret? And he's not described as a slob. He's not described as fat, which is what Nedry is described of consistently afterwards. You're not told anything about him other than he's arrogant and he's, um, I forget what the other word is, but there's basically two things. And then the next chapter is called Malcolm. The first thing Malcolm does when he gets on the plane is he exudes confidence and he exudes arrogance and he hits on Sattler right away and he tells everybody who you know what he knows and he's and so I think that they and have to get look a little bit more closely but really follow along how did Crichton perhaps mislead who the inside man was and were we supposed to read it as it was Malcolm and I'm surely we were and uh, but it's hard to see it with fresh eyes again <laughs> it just is but i can't wait to see how he yeah. does that and then what the twist looks like when finally the reveal that it is nedry how that reveals itself because i don't recall now but it must be there but it's lost because the moviegoer would know before they read the book and it's yeah, hard to see it, it again it, it's it's always hard to revisit those those mysteries the first time and especially when it's the like the movie has in, in, it, it's like I do my best mm-hmm. to keep them separate to keep my my idea of Doctor Grant in the movie and Doctor Grant in the mm-hmm. book separate Malcolm in the book and all, all of them honestly um, I'm, the casting is so good that it's yeah. very difficult to to remove them from each other but they are and also Crichton worked on the screenplay so there's always there's still bleed through there but it's that mystery of oh well yeah. There is red herrings thrown in, and you're and he he says, no, the he says uh, Dodson meets with the man, and he mm-hmm. says the man, the man doesn't describe him. And it's like okay, I know you're you're trying to trying to trick me, you're trying to fool me, uh, Michael Crichton. You're trying to make, throw me off the scent. Who is this man that is gonna try and sabotage everything? And it doesn't change anything for me now because I know who yeah. it is. But there is that is those kind of the these layers of motivation, yes, and layers of uh politics of all these characters. They all have different wants and needs and uh, motivation, and some of them you know what they are very mm-hmm. openly and 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 plainly on the page, but others you're just like, hmm. What do they want? Malcolm. He, you mentioned Malcolm. Malcolm is like, well, he is a mathematician. He is a rock star. Mm-hmm. But he also is 
literally the, one of the first things he says is this is gonna fail yeah this is this is gonna be a mess i already i and he's very confident and he's like i'm confident in my math and i'm confident that this park is gonna fail he's, and you don't know yeah. what, what's what's his angle why is he here he's you know? almost there for the joy that will um the satisfaction it will bring him to say this is gonna blow up in your face and just to say it right to hammond's face because he already says it's not gonna work his paper that he submitted said it's not going to work he doesn't need to go he's not going to sign off on it and under no circumstances he can go oh no i guess it is safe ever that's not what he's going to do so i don't know why he's there other than for his own amusement and that is not in seeing dinosaurs that is in saying to hammond and to whomever else is there you're not listening to me you're all wrong and he just wants to show that he is right and he is and i think it's sad at the end like he shouldn't die at the end when he, <laughs> he has a he has a really well, hard time he's going well, into a stupor die at yeah the end. They mentioned that they weren't allowed to go to his funeral, uh, is, is the way they put it. But uh, you're right, Crichton was able to resurrect him. <laughs> I mean, of all the characters, I, I think I've gotten to the point in my life where if I really, really like a character and they die, I, mm-hmm. and they then they retcon it, I'm like, okay, that's fine. Yes. I like Malcolm a lot. He's a good character. He's a lot of fun. And I... It's. I find it relatively believable. It's a. You know, you're getting a little tangential, but the retcon of him being alive, living through. I. I haven't read Lost World in quite a while, but mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it's. I recall it's very much like. Well, I was nearly dead. You know, it's like <laughs> yes. I. I did almost die. You know, it was a close call. Oh, I get it then. You know, and with all the, they even early on we see, these companies very clearly manipulate the truth like they yeah. oh we we found oh you found a living dinosaur oh well let me take it let me take control of that let me let me help let me you with sure. that yeah. let me verify yeah let me help by <laughs> taking that away from actual from scientists and museums so they won't discover that we've accidentally let dinosaurs out into the world <laughs> it's interesting so when the uh that uh, frozen specimen gets mailed to the uh, disease, the DT, Center for Tropical Diseases, whatever it was, um, in New York at Columbia University, um, Alice Levin says, can I take this down to the museum? And the guy's like, no, I would be embarrassed. That's, no, forget it. That's stupid. Don't do that. This isn't going anywhere. I looked it up and Columbia University and the museum are literally a 10 minute bike ride apart. So she could have like literally easily just said, yo, yo, I'm just going to swing over here. But she doesn't. She faxes a guy out in Montana in the Badlands in the middle of the summer. She doesn't go 10 minutes down the street on her bike in, in the city. Somehow she manages to phone a guy. What was he? Utah University? I forget what university he was affiliated with. Grant was affiliated I, with. But it's just curious. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was Utah. I think, I think you're right. I'm not sure, though. And I think there is this. Early on in the novel, you see these series of like miss, slight misses of like, oh, if this had just, if she had taken mm-hmm. the sample here, if they had taken this idea a little bit seriously, mm-hmm. maybe the whole story would change. And I feel like that is a, I don't know, it, it is a trope uh, that you you see a lot in, yeah. in in stories where it's just like, oh, it's so close. If this a few things w- went differently, none of this would have happened. Mm-hmm. And I think, and also, I, I do think that there is a, a elements there of Crichton, and he does this consistently about in his novels about you know coming back to the fact that all these scientists, yes, they're smart, 
yes, they're educated, but they are still people. Mm -hmm. They are st still human and they still make assumptions because they're human and they can't help it. And they may know their field really well, but also with that fact, with the fact that they're so educated, sometimes that education and that assumption that they're so knowledgeable gives them blind spots. And blinders. And yeah. I, blinders, yeah. And him cluing us in on that stuff is, I think, a little bit of a foreshadowing of, well, mm -hmm. it's the same. Like all these people who are working on Jurassic Park I think they're so smart. Yeah. I think they yep. no, we've looked ahead, we've seen all the possible problems. There's no way, nothing can possibly go wrong. There's, and... there's two things I got to say about that. One, we'll get to Arnold because I think that, and you can tell me if you do this in your books, Arnold is a worry wart, and what he is able to do when he worries about things is raise the stakes of things that aren't going to happen. So he raises the tension because he can say, well, what about this, 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 and this? And you go, oh my God, what about that stuff? None of it's going to happen, but you can worry about it. And I think having a worry wart as a character adds tension, and that's useful when you're building tension <laughs> as an author. And so I'd be interested in knowing about that. But the second part, when you talk about how there's this, it's almost like um, in a perfect world where like the, the trail that the clues go to and how they wind up where they are, there's like the, you hear about the janitor that like throws everything out, but almost doesn't throw out the wrong thing. And he, so he pulls it from the wastebasket and all these like little things that just happen just right so that you do get the story you get. And I wonder if, when Malcolm is describing what chaos theory, one of the major elements is that there's initial conditions are that it can go almost in any direction from here. The next step is unpredictable. And so you don't even know what path you might start on any given day, let alone your, your grand scheme for this whole thing that it's not going to deviate almost immediately. And you get this, this journey <laughs> that I wonder if the entire book is meant to be read with a chaotic lens. Or not. And so part of me says, well, Crichton would put like a clue as to whether you should do that or not somewhere in the book. They would say, ah, what's the motif? Or like in a, in a show, there'd be like a little jingle or something in the in the song that you make you think, ah, I should think of this right now. And the only thing I can come up with is, is he literally has, and what I can only imagine is, a quote from Malcolm's report on Jurassic Park. I think that those iterations, there's about seven or eight of them, that are each kind of like uh, act breaks. Each of them, they're scattered all through the book. And I, they must be a way of saying chaos is through the whole book. It's not just about the park, although the whole book is basically just about the park. <laughs> but, uh, I, so I don't know how exactly to tease that out and say this is exactly what Crichton did with that. But it begs that it, you should look at it that way in some respects. And in the first half of this book, how the mystery gets given to you, they all would have wound up at the island anyhow. But the reader wouldn't have got this interesting story about the animals. <laughs> Or this, these are the pressures that are being built up by, that are causing Hammond to have the, the consultants come and inspect the island. It's just this really interesting combination that I don't know quite how to read, if it's meant to be intentional or, or not, but it I, seems to I, I absolutely read it as intentional. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there, the fact that relatively early on in the book, we get a very, really good explanation of chaos theory. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a thing I need. I I think I've said it already, but when when any author gets so popular, it's very you you get haters basically out of the woodwork. And doing that stuff as a person who's had to try and do it, it's very 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 hard to simplify these really complex mm -hmm. um, science scientific ideas and explain them to 
what is a, a genre fiction reader. You know, mm. this is this is we're not I'm not reading a, a, a science journal. I am reading a, a science fiction novel, a, a adventure novel, yeah. uh, even. And you know, the your average reader are they going to want to read about chaos theory? Like, I don't know, but he makes it so accessible, uses Malcolm as this perfect mouthpiece of this like confident braggadocious rock star. Mm. And he's like, Oh no, it's, and he simplifies it down. And when you get that explanation of, Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's something that appears simple on the surface, Mm. but actually there are so many minute factors that you don't see, you don't weigh in. And that is what chaos theory does. It takes those things into account. He uses the the analogy of the, the pool, the pool table of like, oh yeah, you hit a billiard ball. Mm. It's physics. I, I apply this much force, this much spin, this much rotation on a on a cue, and it hits another ball, and then we can measure that out. It'll work out 100% at the same time every time. And he's like, no, actually, those balls are not going to be the same balls all the time. That pool table, the the surface of the table has minute imperfections that mm. are different from every single other pool table. They're not going to bear out the same because it, we don't take those things into account, and the fact that we see all these these things, these moving pieces, and it appears relatively simple of like, oh yeah, we have this park, and we've done this process, and we built all these safeguards to keep the dinosaurs in, and they have a, the, the lysine contingency, and the fact that they can't have they can't have a they can't lay eggs, they're all the same gender, like it's all those. You're like, oh okay, well yeah, they they clearly thought this stuff through, but then this stuff early on about, oh, well, there's already dinosaurs outside the park. Yeah. And, oh, they're actually dangerous. Um, why are they dangerous? Why like And you have these, it's nothing big. It's not like, oh, a T-Rex is walking down Main Street. But it is like, oh, it's these little things around the edges. There's already signs of failure. There's already that. And, it, and that is, it, it's, a, it's building tension. It's building that worry about like, oh, well, what is, what is that then? If we're going to this park and we're seeing these beautiful giant dinosaurs, it's magical, like this. But why? What happened? What about that guy that at the beginning who went to the clinic? They helicopter him in through the rain. What? Why? What happened to him? Oh, it's just a backhoe. <laughs> oh yeah, but the doctor was very sure that it was an animal attack, and enough that hurt and took pictures. But then the camera stole, and you're like, oh, all these little, these little things, and it's very much like, oh, the system has already broken down. That there is already it is not breaking it's not, it, and it it might break down more but it's already started and that and chaos theory has already taken effect it's already yeah. you're already seeing those little tiny things start start to wobble and i think that is i i think it's i think it is absolutely purposeful and i think Crichton does tip his hand by <laughs> titling the act breaks yeah that way i think it is clearly like you know, it's not. This is not literary fiction, so it's not like, oh yeah, we have to delve into the prose to try and figure this stuff yeah, out. But yeah. it is very much like, oh well, no, I can see it. You can, and if you read it closely, I don't think there is a, I don't think it. I think it's more of on a macro level than a micro level. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's there. He's tipping his hand. He's saying, oh no, this is. If you look closely, and you like, if you reread the book and reread the book again, you're like, oh okay, I get it. Malcolm is basically explaining the novel to me. Malcolm is telling me this is what's going to happen in the book. Yeah. And I think that's, I love that. I, I think that is, I love books that do that where there's always a character is like, no, this is what's going to happen. 
and everyone's just like, no, that's you're crazy, Malcolm. Come on, yeah. like it might there might be problems, but but then you're like, oh no, Malcolm was right. Oh God, and it's always like this confident, annoying. Like Malcolm, I love Malcolm, but he's also can be you know annoying, and you're like, oh man, he's right. The guy who thinks he's right is right. Uh, okay. If he wasn't so confident that he was right, it would be less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I, Crichton uses those characters a lot because they're, they are a good voice. They're, they, they serve that role very well, like explaining these kind of complicated science things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to your audience. So, And he does enjoy, also Crichton does enjoy giving these people their comeuppance. Malcolm gets brutally injured, so mm-hmm. it's very much like, oh, well, yeah, he's really smart. He's really right. Didn't stop a dinosaur from killing him. You know, <laughs> the dinosaurs still attacked him. He's not invincible. So when we, you, you spend so much time invested in, in, in developing horror stories and making uh, characters go through, obviously, uh, horrifying gauntlets and, and things like that. What were some of the, when you, when you say that Jurassic Park, in some respects, influenced how you approach what you do and what you write? Were there elements of the, of the book that A, represented horror in a way that was... Um, most to your taste or or there are other examples of, of things that you would use that you've seen Crichton use in your own writing that um that make a big difference like some of it is not even necessarily like i don't know pro construction of prose or anything like that some of it is just like well he's writing genre fiction this is so easy to read mm-hmm. it is sh- short chapters divided up and they they end always end on relatively big dramatic story beats or like oh a reveal even if it's a little tiny reveal it's Mm. not a it's not necessarily like oh look at that and like sometimes it is it's like oh wow there's a dinosaur and it's gigantic but sometimes it's as simple as like oh wow they are you see um you see uh what is it you see dotson and and the, the shadowy board just going okay we're gonna do it and you're like oh and it's just that simple like you see choices being made and they always end chapters in that way and I'm I write that way. I write short chapters relatively. I write punchy stuff that I try and get is page turners, so to speak. But it's really mm-hmm. just like I want to make the story exciting to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't it's I don't think Crichton engages in it like oh I need to end the chapter here so I can make it more <laughs> like you know it's more like well no I think you end you get in you get out yeah you say exactly what you need to say you 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 include only the juiciest most interesting stuff mm-hmm. and then you move on to the next thing Dodson is not he's not that much of a main character he's more of just a he's a guy who gets Nedry where, what he where he needs to go Crane is fine spending more time we see we spend a, a good chunk of time at the uh, the dig site with, mm-hmm. with with dr grant sattler and we you see them drinking beers you know like it's like oh these guys they're roughnecks you know they're not they are not academia yeah and even dr grant you they, they go in how dr grant is he doesn't like those kinds of people he is like no this is this is real science it's getting your hands dirty it's digging mm-hmm. in the dirt and i think it's it is a that is the thing that I think I can recognize the most in my own books. It's just like, oh well, Crichton knows when to spend his his time, his the, the words. You, mm-hmm. we get to the dinosaurs. Let's talk about those dinosaurs. What's some some we get some paragraphs of like describing this the beauty of this dinosaur later on, the dangers and the threats and and how how uh, deadly they are. But it's very much like, you know, you get enough detail about these people to go, oh, I know them now. Mm-hmm. You know, I know Doctor Grant. He's like, oh, he's. He doesn't doesn't like technology. 
He doesn't like academia. He's drinking beer on the job. Yeah. I know him now. Boots and a Hawaiian shirt in the classroom, or jeans and a Hawaiian shirt in the classroom when he's teaching. Yeah, exactly. Unshaved. Exactly. You know him. You get enough detail to go, oh, I know him, and you learn more about him as you go through the novel. But you don't need. We don't get. 10, 10 pages about Dr. Great's yeah. history and all that stuff. It's just like, no, this, he's he's working. Uh, he's, he's a working man, honestly. That's the, I think yeah. that's the thing. Yeah, and you, you, what, you nailed Grant. it. There's two differences. There's a big difference between the film's Alan Grant and the book's Alan Grant. And I had trouble reconciling what it was, but I, I thought long and hard. Because I had Grant in the novel a little too much the Grant from the movie in that. I felt that Grant in the film was old school. And he didn't like the newfangled stuff. And that the new stuff bothered him a lot. And that's true. But the Grant in the book isn't old school. He's blue collar, which is different. It's not that he wouldn't use new tech. It's that he, he likes the hard work. He doesn't like the analysis and the computer analysis that comes later. He didn't like having a numbers you know, crunch to give him an answer. He wants to find the answer himself. He likes the hard work. He doesn't like the, the soft work that comes with like getting capital to, to do your funding and stuff like that, the teacup dinosaur hunters. And that's different yeah. from old school versus new school. You can have very, I mean, uh, the great Gatsby showed us, you can be old school and have plenty of old, old what was it, old money? <laughs> like old school doesn't mean that you're not the money guy or have soft skills or the, the aristocratic skills set. So I had the mischaracters, but I think the one in the film is old school, where it versus new school, and then the book is definitely blue collar versus white collar, and I think that Hammett obviously I, is I, the white collar level, and it's interesting like that. Yeah, and I think the the the, the one thing that it keep me off, and I'd forgotten entirely uh, when I before I reread, was they I it really stood out to me. He described Doctor Grant as barrel chested. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sam Neill is amazing, but he is not barrel chested. <laughs> no. You know, that, and uh, I think it's, it immediately made me think of like pulp, pulp heroes. It made me think of sure. like, uh, like Tarzan or, or, uh, or uh, explorer types, it, pulp adventure heroes. Yeah. And I feel like that is where we're getting that, that is the, the, the difference. Uh, uh, with the Grant in the book versus the Grant in the movie, where mm-hmm. Grant in the movie is is that you know doesn't like technology and and he's, he's a little cynical and a little bit of a smartass, mm-hmm. but he is our perspective character. But he's not an adventurer, you know. He's not no. a he's not a he's not a, a, a Tarzan. He's not like some muscle bound guy who can. But I feel like when you. Say he's barrel chested. I'm like, oh, yeah. Wait a minute. That's not. You don't describe a scientist as barrel chested. Not usually. Yeah. I'm like, that's okay. That's interesting. I like it. And I think that's it, when you have a lot of scientists in your book, you have to delineate. You have to separate mm-hmm. who who's this from that. And you have Malcolm, who's like, oh no, he is the more. It is not. And like, I do appreciate the fact they don't have the nerdy scientist there yeah. is no uh professor freak in this there is no yeah th- there is uh you have uh sadler she's described she's like uh, like uh like oh the sexy young woman who's actually a brilliant scientist and then you have and you have her counter frankly dr rain is her counterpart like he's the burly mm-hmm. adventurer mm-hmm. scientist but then you have um you have malcolm who's 
are wearing all black <laughs> and 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 uh talks very confidently and and uh is a rock star and it's you don't you that i i think that's another thing i latched onto as a nerdy kid to Crichton in general is like his scientists are not just they're not Urkel, yeah. you know they're not that stereotype they are individual and they all have like oh yeah yes they are scientists yes they're very educated yes they're very knowledgeable about in their field but also they're not just like a dude with a pocket protector right you know and i think that i didn't this is my first it was my first exposure to like oh no scientists can be cool yeah scientists can be awesome like like they can be cool people because and it's not because not in contrast to their knowledge it's because they're so smart mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and because they act on that intelligence oh that's why they're cool mm -hmm. this is a, these are cool people i like these people and you're right grant is an interesting character in that he's so cerebral that he is often out thinking the dinosaurs to save his life as opposed to just outrunning the dinosaurs in the film he's got the flare and he's got it tricked to go away and he was able to, and when he he's saying they can't see me if i don't move sit still and Every, I mean, you'd have to imagine every fiber of your being saying, no, 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 run. <laughs> but he's doing everything against it to say, I can outthink them. And so that's really clever. I love, I love that part of his character that uh, it is, it is his expertise that gets him through it. Um, and it's not, it's not beat over your head that that's why it just, he's so clever. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's show not tell. It is that, it's that old, it's that old yeah. adage. It's like, he doesn't, you don't get, we don't get told that. Mm -hmm. Grant is clever and that he can think his way through problems. He does that and we go, oh, he's smart. He's clever. He knows what he's doing. And there isn't some character after he goes, oh, he's so clever. <laughs> then to really knock you over the head with it. Crichton is great with that. I love, uh, he does a couple things. One, I think when Timmy falls out of the tree in the car, he has obviously occurred a, a concussion. And it gives you all of the symptoms of a concussion. He throws up, he's dizzy, he can't figure out where he is, he wants to sleep. But it doesn't say he has a concussion. And I like that, show, don't tell. Two, and Crichton does this in a lot of his works, maybe lots of authors, authors do as well. Um, instead of just having somebody say something, he'll give you a document. So you get the top sheet from the plans and you read the document and you get to skim it yourself. And then the characters talk about it a little bit, but you get to digest that yourself. I know that in he had a book called Next, which is about like genetic engineering and... and uh, how people were misusing it. It could be the whole story on Biosyn later. But uh, they give you like web pages and Google searches and they give you all kinds of newspaper clippings. All these artifacts that show you something so you can see it for yourself rather than just have somebody provide exposition at some point. And, and Crichton demonstrably does that well. And I like that the, he uses, you know, metatextual documentation to insert into his stories that help tell it a little bit. And I've been inspired before to, to try and tell a story just through newspaper clippings or something like that. But obviously you can't do it just that, but it, it's very clever. I mean, um, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a relatively well-known horror novel called House of Leaves. I don't know if you know about, if you've ever read that, but it is, it's all that. It is oh, yeah? sort of, it's, it's, it is about, it is, but it's a puzzle. The book itself is a puzzle. Mm -hmm. where you're flipping you don't read it really in order because you're constantly referencing different pages and it's like it tells the story of a, a haunted house effectively but it is you're reading documents like that uh i know stephen king did that a lot with like i remember carrie in particular there's newspaper articles about what happened to this town what happened to this prom and you know like about carrie about this they couldn't explain what happened in retrospect 
to the town. But it is, I feel like uh, there is a very fine line with using that stuff, with using that metatextual in like uh, documents, using archival documents to mm -hmm. tell the story. And I think you can't do too much of it, at least <laughs> in a book like this. You can't because your readers will go like, I'm not going to yeah. read. You lose the plot. Three yeah. page. I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to read three pages of a newspaper. Yeah. But Crichton understands, and I think the best the, the best writers who do use this stuff, um, they understand like, oh, if you give the reader the hook as to why this document is important, mm -hmm. what it's what's in it, why does it matter? They'll 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 crave it. You'll be like, oh yes, I need. I yeah, I love to see it because it makes the world feel realer and the document in it does feel like you're, it puts you in the shoes of that uh, investigator of mm -hmm. like, oh, I am uncovering these mysteries about why this person did that or the, the hidden connection between these two characters, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all about setting the hook and Crichton is a master at it. He's one of the best. We are like... So Imagine how time flies here. This is incredible. We're just about out of it. I wanted to talk to you more about pacing because there's incredible things that uh, Crichton does to to tease you about what he's going to get to later. The the frog DNA explanation doesn't come to like the 400th page of the book. Uh, I wanted to go over the yeah. scariest moments, the best dinosaur attacks. I wanted to talk more about Jurassic Park 3 with you because I know that you had that on your list. Would you want to come back and, and do this again at some point? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's no problem. All right. Well... Tell everyone where they can find I, your website, you, all your cool stuff before uh, oh, before you yeah. go anywhere. On social media, mostly on Twitter. Mm -hmm. It's at Robbie Dorman. That's my name. Uh, my website is also my name, RobbieDorman.com. has links to everything I do on my podcast, all my books. Burial is my newest. I talked about that at the beginning. If you are a big Crichton fan, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you are. <laughs> uh, Regrowth is probably my most Crichton-esque novel, but also underneath, also a lot of science fiction in that as well. Those are my two most science fiction-y uh, novels, uh, yeah, The Simpsons Show. It's on. That's my most popular thing mm -hmm. podcast. If you want to go listen to me yell about the 450th or whatever episode of The Simpsons <laughs> we're on about now, uh, that's that, that's it. That's incredible, and I can vouch for that Simpsons podcast. That's excellent. I had a lot of fun with that. We liked the uh, the quiz back in the early days. We we could get the questions a little bit easier back then. My wife and oh, I. Oh, the now I the know, quiz has gotten a little too. Uh... <laughs> are... I mean, when you do it, so many so long you yeah. just run out of questions and you're just like well uh this is a very and matt still knows it half yeah. the time and i just i don't I, well just the golden oh, years are so familiar with us and so the questions in the golden year era were like oh yeah we got this slam dunk we were we we're all the lines all the quotes we were just dying in the car when you get past the you know 15th 16th season it's like yeah i'm not as familiar <laughs> no. with these they're not as perfect as yeah, they used to be i mean honestly you don't. You don't need to. You don't need to do like. No one needs to watch Bonfire of the Manatees. You don't need that. No one. No one need, I like. I am doing it just because I'm a stubborn, bullheaded, uh, crazy person. But mm -hmm. you, the average person, never needs to watch Marge and the Manatee Man. Like, why? Why? You don't need that. It's fine. You're fine. It's fine. Have you enjoyed? The latest season have they have they gotten back? If they aren't great, at least they're far more character centered than they ever were. For yeah, a long time. season thirty three. The past couple seasons actually thirty two was was decent. Thirty three has been decent, and I, and I say decent because that's like an average. But there are some really there have been there have been legitimately good episodes this mm -hmm. this in season thirty three. Uh, Lisa's belly is the one that stands out to my mind because mm -hmm. it is 
it's one of them is at least I'm a sucker for Lisa episodes. Uh, it is character focused and it tells a, like a legitimate like about mm-hmm. accepting your body and stuff like that, which I think is a great message. And uh, there's a couple episodes. Uh, there's a two parter called A Serious Flanders, part one and two, yeah. which are like aping prestige television. And I think they do a really good job and it's a lot of fun. Not all of them are winners, but none of them are as bad <laughs> like the bad episodes of season 33 are just like oh, okay it's fine it's kind of boring yeah but they're not season 18 they're not they're you know there's no homer blaming dui on mars there's not episode like it's none of that you know it's no man <laughs> there's not manatees that just come up uh even though the last episode did have an octopus i i but even that is way more interesting than the bonfire. I, 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 that is the thing that I do wish people like they are getting better. And I think they are, they're trying at least. I think that's, that's the primary. You're like, they're trying, which is all I really want. Yeah. Please just try. Well, and for our six, yes, it's been, it's made it all the more uh, worthwhile. Yeah. Well, thanks yeah. so much for being on here. Uh, continued success with everything. It's been incredible. And, um, and I look forward to having you back one of these days. We'll see what happens. We'll get to the right. second half of the book. Thank- It'll be awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Great. All right. Robbie Dorman, everybody. An incredible thank you to my great guest, Robbie Dorman. Be sure to check out his website and see if there's any of those books that uh, you'd be interested in. I bet you you will be. This week's text is Airport, spanning from pages 69 to 71. In a synopsis, Dr. Lewis Dodson meets his mysterious inside man, going over the details of the plan showing that there are more nefarious deeds afoot with this weekend on Hammond's private island during the safety inspection. Plot points. Dr. Lou Dodson from Biosyn meets with his inside man at the airport going over their plan to steal 15 frozen embryos from InGen, which should be transported by an innocuous Gillette foamy shaving cream canister. This man is being paid $750,000 to perform the theft, as well as $50,000 additional dollars for each viable embryo. They outline their plan succinctly. Characters, we have Dr. Lewis Dodson. He, quote, looks around quickly because he's a little nervous, perhaps frantic, or in fact, late. Dodson is wearing a straw hat, like a disguise. He's angry and frustrated with his guy. He's invested six months into cultivating his mark. He's especially skilled at industrial espionage in the biotech world. In 1987, he lured a geneticist from Cetus to Biosyn who put a drop of five strains of engineered bacteria on her fingernails and walked out of the building. He's carrying a briefcase of $750,000, which he hands over, as well as Gillette foamy shaving cream. Dodson's man. This guy is already waiting for Dodson at the counter, and he laughs at Dodson, who appears to be concealing his identity with a makeshift costume. Realizing his importance to Dodson, he's become more obnoxious and arrogant over the past six months. He's a rare bird, exactly what Dodson is looking for, an InGen employee with access to the embryos who is willing to steal them and who could defeat the security system. The, quote, susceptible InGen employee was found, quote, earlier in the year, as we're told on page 70, and Dodson has helped him in, quote, small ways. We don't find out until much later, but this is Dennis Nedry, and he is, in fact, recording Dodson saying incriminating things to blackmail him in case he doesn't want to pay the rest of the money he is owed which is why he keeps saying Dodson over and over. It's for this recording. He specifically says all the incriminating stuff out loud as much as he can. Hell, no, Dr. Dodson, I want to see the damn money. 
he says, followed by, that's fine, Dr. Dodson, and then spells out the plan. I remember 15 species, frozen embryos, and how am I going to transport them? The whole plan is recorded for his reassurance, should he need it, when recouping the additional $50,000 per embryo after the transaction. So here's a neat detail. This guy has to catch his flight, which leaves in 10 minutes. And that 10-minute window was closing as he speaks with Dodson. And during this meeting, he's handed a briefcase filled with $750,000 in cash. And then we're to understand, logically, that he hops on the plane to San Jose. He's taken this briefcase with him. Perhaps he's rented a locker in San Jose and stashed this briefcase there. Or he may even have kept the briefcase with him as he travels on to Isla Nublar. It's likely this mysterious figure is carrying a briefcase full of cash with him onto Isla Nublar. Nothing more of the cash is ever spoken of, so we don't know, but probably he would want to keep that with him, or at least have taken very special care of it. If you've read this book, seen the movie, we know who the inside man is. But for the purposes of letting Crichton build his mystery, let's leave him unidentified, beyond what I already said, so we can track it, this mystery and see how Crichton plays it up going forward. And spoiler alert, I don't think he does much with it. Uh, in terms of other things, we have InGen. InGen presents a tougher challenge to Dodson, who is usually doing industrial espionage quite well. Because the samples aren't microscopic bacteria, but instead frozen embryos, which are much more difficult to sneak out the door. InGen guards its embryos with the most elaborate security measures. We have a couple different localities. The departure building of the San Francisco airport. They're more specifically at a coffee shop at the departure building in the San Francisco airport. And note, if the Biosyn meeting was at its head office in Cupertino, California, and this meeting is in San Francisco, that means that Dodson traveled about 40 miles to meet his man, which is no biggie, in case you were wondering. East and the North Dock. Finally, we get some valuable information of the layout of Isla Nublar. There are two docks, a North Dock and an East Dock. This may be important later in terms of the ship's island departure lanes. As we'll discover, they spot the ship while they're on the south end of the island near the volcanic fields and the stegosaur paddock. But the boats would never travel near the south end. There are no docks there. They'd go due east back to Costa Rica. There's no need to traverse the southern or western shores of Isla Nublar at all. So let's see if we can make some sense of that when we get there. But that's an interesting question that comes to my mind anyhow. Illusions and references. We have the Gillette Foamy Shaving Cream. I'm not entirely sure why a specific brand name was used, but it's certainly a recognizable brand. Gillette, the best a man can get. This can was assembled by Dodson's technical team, who've been working on it, quote, around the clock for the last two days. Presumably, this would be after Dodson's emergency meeting with the board of directors in the chapter Cowan, Swain, and Ross. Carlos and Charlie's in Silicon Valley. Apparently, this is a chain of Mexican casual dining restaurants located in Mexican and Caribbean tourist destinations. Perhaps like a Mexican Dave and Buster's? This is a real franchise, and I suppose if one were familiar with this type of restaurant, they get an immediate sense of ambiance uh, just by that reference. It's a fail for me. I don't, I don't know who Carlos and, and Charlie are, but I'm not an international traveler in 1980 either, so that's okay. Cetus Corporation. Cetus Corp is a real company that the fictitious Dodgson headhunts a scientist from and performs industrial espionage against. It's one of the first biotechnology companies established in 1971 in Berkeley, California, with its operations predominantly performed in the nearby Emeryville. Dodson would have performed this espionage sometime in the 1980s, likely. He's 25 years old in 1980, and we know that this is probably when 
he was at Johns Hopkins getting kicked out of there. So his working for Biosyn and doing dastardly things for them would have come after working at the, at the hospital. This isn't relevant to the story, but Cetus Corps merged with Chiron Corporation in 1991, and they are presently part of Novartis, who developed to this day pharmaceutical drugs and a, quote, revolutionary DNA amplification technique, according to Wikipedia. Streptokinase, or ice minus. These illusions are examples of microscopic bacterium that are too small to see with the naked eye, but contain the genes for a heart attack enzyme or could prevent frost damage to crops, respectively. And a single bit of it could be worth billions to the right buyer. Stylistic techniques. The M-dash returns some more. On page 69, nothing Dodson could do about that now, M-dash. Both men knew what the stakes were. And then there's another quote here on 70. It was the moment that Dodson had been waiting for, M-dash, because it meant his man would have access to the embryos. And again, these are examples of the M-dash being employed like a less formal version of a colon used to emphasize the conclusion of a sentence. But on page 71, he uses it again as a case where it's just uh, serving as an interruption to a sentence. You sure you know how to work the M-dash? So there we go. Another thing I have here is puff. In our discussion section, we've got, believe me, I know, coming up again. Dodson's man halts Dodson's worrying by insisting, believe me, I know, on page 71. He, Dodson is asking, so you're sure you know how to work that? And he's interrupted. And this is probably used to keep Dodson from saying anything more that might inform the reader on this mystery man's identity. Dodson was likely going to talk about computer systems or something, which might have tipped us off that this was a computer nerd. But by eliminating that, we can further suggest that it's perhaps Malcolm who is the culprit. In terms of the island layout, Dodson's inside man insists that Dodson's boat meet him at the east dock of the island on Friday night, on page 71, and specifically not the north dock, where the big supply boats arrive. The east dock is a small utility dock. You got that? So the north dock is where the supply ships reach Isla Nublar. However, it's at the volcanic southern end of the island where the A and B is spotted with the raptors on it, right? We'll find that later in the book. So I'll have to double check this part, but how do the kids see the raptors on the A and B that's departing from the big north dock while on the southern end of the island, possibly eight miles away? I mean, I guess they have binoculars, but that's crazy, right? I think there's a line about like how kids have better vision than adults do, but like that's, that's a little different. Um, timeline, the Gillette foamy shaving cream canister was assembled by Dodson's technical team who'd been working on it, quote, around the clock for the last two days. Presumably, this would be after Dodson's emergency meeting with the board of directors in the chapter Target of Opportunity. Once receiving approval, he then had his tech team work around the clock to get this thing ready before, quote, his inside man leaves for the island. This chapter comes with just 10 minutes before the inside man's flight from San Francisco to San Jose, Costa Rica, where he'll meet up with Hammond and the rest of the team before departing from San Jose to Isla Nublar. In this chapter, the man says he'll be delivering the Gillette Foamy to the East Dock on Friday night, on page 71. So that'll be tomorrow. That makes today, the day that they're traveling, Thursday. Thursday is when Sattler and Grant board Hammond's Gulfstream 2 in Chateau in Montana. That's Thursday. Uh, the day before that is when we are invited over to the phone by Hammond to inspect the island. That's 24 hours before. So Dodson's technical team was set to work on making this canister before... Grant and Sattler are invited for the inspection. 
We know that Hammond invited Gennaro and Malcolm before the other consultants. That's 48 hours ago. So somewhere around where Gennaro and Cowanswain and Ross are deciding to have a spontaneous inspection of the island is when Dodson also catches breath about this inspection and calls his emergency meeting of the board of directors, which means perhaps Dodson and Biosyn have a mole at Cowanswain and Ross. Or he's, perhaps he's bugging his, their phones, or, and which is most likely, he might have a private investigator just watching Gennaro or Hammond at all times. We find out in The Lost World that Dodson, in fact, employs private investigators to snoop around targets of opportunity. But again, I don't think you need to have read other books to understand what is in this book. That just seems unfair, especially when I don't believe Crichton at the time had any plans to write a sequel when he finished writing this. So I don't think there were any answers to be left out of this book for the purposes of having them answered in another book. In any case, the order that these chapters appear isn't chronological. And this would have been a choice so that Crichton isn't spoiling the surprise that InGen is cloning dinosaurs earlier in the novel than necessary. But it begs the question, if you were to reorder the chapters and put target of opportunity before plans at the very beginning of uh, this, this act, how would that turn out? Would there be even more foreshadowing? Would hearing about the mysterious layout of Hammond's Island Resort be more worrisome? It would certainly increase the dramatic irony in that we the readers would know something the characters do not, and perhaps provide even more tension knowing that they're walking into a very dangerous situation. I mean, in earlier episodes of this podcast, we were already deliberating on how to read these chapters because we, as readers, already know that this is a story about dinosaurs on an island, even though the first 60 pages are all about building this mystery about what's on Hammond's Island. At no point for readers is it a mystery, and then it's spelled out in Target of Opportunity before they even reach the island. Dodgson spoils the big reveal and says they're going to make miniature dinosaurs and sell people specialized pet food, already making a mockery of the situation. I think there's an argument to be made for making Biosyn a bigger player in the story. Presently, Dodson and Biosyn get two chapters. That's Target of Opportunity and Airport. And that's barely eight pages. And a brief mention in Skeleton when Bob Morris introduces Dodson kind of anecdotally. But if Crichton had put Target of Opportunity ahead of this act, it could have really driven home the calamities that are about to befall our heroes, raising the tension and raising the stakes. Note that the mystery man believes he'll be back in San Jose probably... By Sunday, he says on page 71, and on Sunday morning, he insists in the San Jose airport that the rest of his cash be handed to him. Dodson's man. Why is Dodson's mystery man identity kept a secret? I wouldn't have kept him a secret myself, but perhaps this was a matter of pacing where we're just trying to get to the island without introducing any new characters and backstories when it could be done later. Perhaps we're to believe that the inside man might be anybody? Could the inside man be Malcolm? All we're really told about Dodson's man is that he's become more obnoxious and arrogant over the past six months. And then the next chapter is called Malcolm, where he is performatively obnoxious and arrogant, and he's spelled out to be entirely antithetical to the concept of the park. He detests the entire project, openly, happily. Did you read the story believing that Malcolm might have been Dodson's man? Now, I don't recall that ever being a consideration for me, but perhaps that's where spoilers are knowing what's going to happen and who people are in advance takes the element of surprise out of your reading of the text. We can talk about it in the next episode that will be about the next chapter, but I think Crichton has specifically designed this shadowed identity to imply that Malcolm is the inside man, and then there's the great unveiling later on. Now, I might have missed a lot of misdirection that totally flew over my head the first time I read it, 
But let's see how Crichton writes Malcolm and see if we get a surprise twist when Nedru is revealed or not. Weighing in, Dodson argues that bioengineered DNA is weight for weight the most valuable material in the world on page 69. Well, that's almost a joke because of all things that are valuable, it may be literally the least massive thing that you can patent and sell. It almost goes without saying. There are a few smaller things that you could possibly make for profit. So weight for weight, it almost has to be the most valuable commodity in terms of value and total mass, right? But it bears mentioning, I suppose, for if nothing else, the rhetorical statement that biotech is valuable, and in this case, hard to protect against misuse or misappropriation because it's so portable and transmissible. Elaborate security measures. InGen guards its embryos with the most elaborate security measures, we're told on page 69. Well, they're already on an island 100 miles off the west coast of Costa Rica, fairly isolated, with minimal staff members on the island. I guess there's a mention that also a security guard actually stands by during the tour behind a locked door on an island where there are no visitors, barring this one exceptional day that a tour is being given to an ad hoc group of safety inspectors, and only authorized personnel are on location anyhow. So it's already on a truly remote, inaccessible location. It's said that they run the entire park with only 20 people. So there are 20 people relative to a small classroom worth of people. And those are the only people approved to be kicking around on this remote, inaccessible island anyhow. And and there's armed security stationed at the control room doors? Like, what 20 people have you decided to let on this island? In any case, they're well secured, and it feels like overkill, right? And compare that the embryos, which are potential dinosaurs, how well they are protected, whereas their actual dinosaurs aren't really protected. They're escaping the island. Why are the embryos surrounded with the most elaborate security measures, but the dinosaurs themselves are just in fences and moats? I don't know. In Building a Mystery, we've now segued from the mysterious little creatures and critters that are biting children and moved on to the identity of Dotson's man. All we right now know is uh, he's obnoxious and arrogant. That's all there is to it. And he will be joining our heroes on the plane. Well, that's it for this episode today. Thank you to everybody who is tuned in to listen. Thank you so much to Robbie Dorman. Uh, once again, check out the, the Simpsons Show podcast. That's a wonderful way to spend an hour uh, each week. I want to sign off today also by thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts about what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, or tear down, or gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Podcast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. We're finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. And me, I'm on Twitter. by me, RogersRyan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also about that too. Until next time.